Support for LAists comes from FX, presenting The Bear. Season 2 follows as the crew transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Idebury, and Eben Moss Backrack. Emmy-eligible in all comedy categories. Support comes from Gloria Kaufman Presents Dance at the Music Center, presenting the Joffrey Ballet's Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's psychological drama about the beautiful but married Anna caught in an affair with a dashing count at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, June 21st through 23rd. Tickets at musiccenter.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mansell. Great to be back with you today. My thanks to Austin Cross for hosting for me yesterday while I was having some intensive dental work. I would have much rather been with you yesterday for Air Talk, but my thanks to Austin for filling in while I was I was in the uh, dental chair. Uh, also, I want to thank you for your incredible support during our extended three hours of Air Talk on Giving Tuesday, a day really devoted to the spirit of the season and to see the response from Air Talk listeners. It's just so heartening. I have to just tell you how much it means to me and all of us on the AirTalk team. Um, we never get blasé about this. It really means a great deal to us that you appreciate the journalist of LA, journalism of LA as 89.3 and, and that you support the program. And speaking of outstanding journalism with LAist, I'm very pleased to have my colleague Nick Gerda with me today. You may be familiar that last week, uh, Nick, after putting extensive time and, and research effort into a story, published a piece which detailed uh, uh, significant support that Orange County Supervisor Andrew Doe gave to funding uh, for a mental health services organization led by his adult daughter. So that story, very detailed. Nick can refresh us on that today. But then this week, he has another concerning story about Supervisor Doe. Nick Gerda, by the way, covers unhoused communities as well as doing this investigative work for us. Nick, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Larry. Let's quickly go back and revisit last week's reporting that you did and this mental health services company that got a big county contract in part through the support of Andrew Doe. Yeah, so what our investigation revealed last week is that Supervisor Doe uh, directed over $3 million to a uh, little-known mental health organization run by his 22-year-old daughter, Rhiannon Doe, who's a full-time law student, um, and it generated a lot of concerns um, within the county and and outside the county as well um, when this was happening, but it hadn't been um, brought out publicly. And a lot of those concerns were around how Doe did not disclose his um, family connection to this organization. He'd also previously um, directed over uh, $4 million to this organi- to the parent organization of this entity um, and, and hasn't been answering any questions from us um, and I believe other, other outlets as well about um, his role in directing this money. Uh, I've asked the county uh, multiple times what were their qualifications, why were they chosen uh, over other more established organizations. Uh, and I've gotten just a wall of silence for the last uh, three weeks. Um, and you've yeah. asked uh, for the county uh, director of, of mental health to 
uh, fill you in on this. You haven't gotten any response there either, have you? I, I've put my questions to the health department's um, public information staff and also to the county CEO, the very top county official. Um, he, I ran into him in a hallway um, this week, and he was kind of quickly walking to an elevator and, and told me he did not know about the family connection before the board was voting to approve this money, um, but uh, he didn't have anything else to add. Um, I've also asked for records of the subcontracts, the actual contract documents, and uh, any reporting back about the performance of this organization, um, which is pretty standard public record material. Uh, it's been three weeks since I've asked questions for those 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 records, and I've still got nothing nothing back. But I'm going to continue to um, pursue you know public information about um, where these dollars went and and um, how this organization was performing. We should mention there's nothing here that is illegal because she was an adult daughter. So you you couldn't there could be um, a, a legal matter if it's a minor child. But in this case, it's not. There's nothing strictly illegal about it. But the county does have an, an ethics ordinance, doesn't it? How might this fit in with that? It does. There's a code of ethics at the county that says that there should not, there shall not be any favoritism to anyone based on um, family relationship. And so we've put questions to the county as well: of did this comply with that policy or that that ethics code? Uh, we've gotten no answers um, back about that. Um, and from a legal standpoint, the state's conflict of interest uh, laws uh, apply if an elected official is um, awarding money to their child if they're under 18, but not if they're over 18. Um, there could be other legal legal issues to this. Um, we haven't been able to get answers to a lot of questions that would help clarify if there's um, possible legal violations here. Um, but from a purely conflict of interest uh, standpoint, from under state law, it does not apply with adult children of elected officials. And that's something that was very surprising to, um, to even experts who I was interviewing uh, about this, is that the state had not um, expanded that definition that of that conflict. That needed to be disclosed or potentially a person recused right. him or herself from those right. and there, there actually was a bill that was moving through the legislature in 2016, actually passed unanimously in the state Senate and then passed unanimously in some assembly committees um, that would have uh, expanded the conflict of interest definition to say that immediate family does include adult children of elected officials, but it, it suddenly um, you know, dropped, dropped dead on the, uh, in, in the legislature at some point. Now, Nick, there's also some question, at least earlier on, about uh, this mental health services program, whether it was certified to operate. Yeah, one of the things uh, we discovered in our reporting is that the the entity that Doe was directing millions of dollars to was not legally registered as a nonprofit in California. And in looking into the laws and speaking to experts about that, uh, they said that this this entity really was not. It was basically illegal to be raising funds and spending uh, nonprofit funds. Um, so that's another big question that this all raises: is what was the vetting process here? if this entity was not legally um, allowed to operate in the state of California. And at one point, uh, they had gotten a letter from the state attorney general saying they were delinquent, could not legally operate. And during that period, they were delinquent. Um, there was an item to award mil millions of dollars more to this organization. We're talking with LAist reporter Nick Gerda joining us on Air Talk. And again, we invited Supervisor Andrew Doe to join us this morning for this conversation. But uh, we have not heard a response uh, to our request. And as Nick detailed, he has on multiple occasions asked the Orange County supervisor to respond to a series of questions, and he's not done so. So this week, um, you reported about this long-running case I wasn't even aware of involving the city of Santa Ana and a homeless a services center located in the city, a months-long trial in which the supervisor was called to testify on behalf of the defense, which is um, the service provider here. Uh, and and 
So share with us what happened to lead to the judge declaring a mistrial. Yeah, and in terms of some background, this is a case that's been nearly four years in the running. The city of Santa Ana has authorized up to a million dollars in their legal fees on the case. Very significant case. And the uh, the trial started in um, uh, June, I believe, June or July, and had been going for about five months, uh, a couple days a month. So 14 days of testimony and, and trial at this point. And you fast forward to mid-November, so this month, and Supervisor Doe was called to testify as a witness. And he testified during the morning. They took a lunch break. When they come back from the lunch break, the judge in the case um, declares that he just found out that Supervisor Doe is married to one of the highest ranking judges at the court, Sherry Pham, and um, that this means that, that there's a mistrial in the case because it hadn't been disclosed to this judge that this witness was married to such a high high ranking judge. And um, the, the trial judge said uh, he would have wished under better circumstances that Supervisor Doe would have disclosed that. Um, he did not. And uh, and this the, the whole trial got thrown out by the judge. And it really upset um, some of the parties to the case. The, uh, yeah, defendant, all the months invested in this. Yeah, the, the defendant has filed an appeal, um, over 500 pages of attached exhibits, 50-page plea for this mistrial to be overturned, and they said it would be a colossal waste of time and resources uh, for everyone to have to redo this trial that um, had been years in the making, had been going on for months, um, ex- very expensive, and it was all thrown out because of this uh, un- undisclosed family relationship with uh, Supervisor Doe. And I have to say, I don't quite understand this because if Doe had disclosed this and said, my wife is the assistant presiding judge of Orange County Superior Court, how would that have changed the judge's, I mean, the judge in this trial's decision, I don't quite understand his reasoning on this. Yeah, it is a very um, interesting and, and confusing situation to a number of attorneys I've talked to who who are familiar with, with what happened here, um, because the judge didn't, he basically said, um, I've reviewed, went through and reviewed all the ethics rules around this and have concluded that I cannot be impartial um, and I must recuse myself. But he didn't explain in detail that, that decision um, and sort of very quickly set it for um, a hearing before a different judge to decide on a new trial date, um, and that that hearing is still is a couple months away. Um, but uh, didn't really get into his reasoning. So, so it may be something yeah. personally involving him that he's not that the judge is not publicly dis- because then you think, well, can no Orange County Superior Court judge sit in judgment of this trial if Andrew Doe is going to testify? That that, that really seems raises kind that of, question. Yeah, yeah. D- does it mean that this case can't be heard or or not? Um, and, and I suppose that will now be before the appeals court to decide um, uh, what what happens with this case. Um, I'll add that the judge um, used the word frustrated to describe how he felt um, and had a little sort of a snippy exchange with, with an, an attorney in the case um, where the judge said, don't look at me like that. And the attorney said, I'm, you know, I'm just frustrated. And the judge <laughs> said, I'm frustrated too. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Nick Gerda, LAist reporter, about this trial, which was declared a mistrial earlier this month after Supervisor Andrew Doe testified without disclosing that his wife is a senior official with the same court system where the case is being heard. Um, and and just in terms of the particular issues at play in this case, what is Santa Ana taking issue with with the operation of this homeless services center? Yeah, so Santa Ana is trying to get this service center shut down. Um, it's been in operation for about 20 years, and it's sort of a drop-in center for unhoused people where they can come get um, laundry done, uh, get snacks, and get referrals to services elsewhere. Um, and what the city says is Santa Ana's borne, you know, uh, the responsibility for so many, uh, you know, disproportionately, hugely disproportionately, uh, they host uh, services for unhoused people while other parts of the county uh, don't step up anywhere near as much, which is which is true. Um, and they say this 
center is is sort of a constant concentrating unhoused people with lots of mental health issues uh, who sort of congregate in the area around the center and are um, you know using drugs and uh, affecting kids walking to school things like that um, and it's it's not really a treatment center not really solving people's issues um, it's sort of a drop-in drop-out place and um, the on the other side the county says this is providing a valuable service helping link people to um, treatment and services but even the county itself has some um, debate the Board of Supervisors had a very contentious split vote on Tuesday this week actually on whether to sort of renew this service for the next year while this case is going on and it was a three to two vote two of the supervisors voted against continuing the service, um, saying they had um, given notice to this organization to find a new location uh, six months ago and that there hadn't been any progress and that this is sort of an outdated model, that these are the kinds of services that should be offered inside a shelter where there's a more um, uh, centralized, structured place where people already are going to uh, and that it shouldn't be in this particular location. So a lot of debate about its location. But again, the county uh, county staff say it's providing a valuable service for unhoused people. Nick, what had been the response of uh, the uh, colleagues to Andrew Doe on the Board of Supervisors? Have have the other four weighed in on this? Yeah, I've reached out to all of them multiple times. Um, two of them, uh, Vicente Sarmiento and Katrina Foley, both supervisors, um, have said that these kinds of family relationships um, should be disclosed. They actually want to change change county policy to require disclosure, make it very clear um, that these, these family relationships need to be disclosed. Uh, Supervisor Don Wagner, um, who tends to be uh, vote more closely with Doe on the board. He um, he said he didn't see any issue with Doe not disclosing this family relationship um, because it's not technically required under um, state law. Uh, and Supervisor Doug Chafee, um, who's also close with Doe, uh, did not return my, my calls for comment. Also, uh, you mentioned, I believe, that his daughter's 22 years old. I think she's a UCI law student, uh, a Davis graduate. What... Um, what background does she have in this to be president of of this nonprofit mental health services provider? Yeah, so in looking at her LinkedIn and, and other publicly available information we could find, um, she, her, her background, her only work experience other than this, this organization um, is an internship with the Steinberg Institute, which advocates for mental health legislation at the state level in Sacramento. Um, I believe that was when she was an undergrad at UC Davis. And then she has a, an internship. Uh, she, she previously did an internship at a business law firm. Um, and that's her only prior work experience we were able to find um, other than um, this, this new entity. Of what's called Warner Wellness Center that she runs. Yeah. Then this morning, the Orange County Register's editorial board, uh, which had supported Doe's candidacy in his two previous elections, he is, by the way, termed out at the end of this term, um, it called for him to step down in the wake of your reporting, Nick. They did. Uh, this was just this morning that this was posted by the Register's editorial board. They previously endorsed uh, Andrew Doe in both of his uh, re-elections as supervisor in 2016 and 2020. And they say this this latest reporting by LAist is the, the final straw for them in calling for his resignation. And, and they say he um, can't be trusted. That's that's their words there. Um, so it, the Register um, hasn't covered uh, this story from a news standpoint, but their editorial board has, has issued this um, this editorial calling for him to resign. And, and they say very very specifically in the editorial, though none of this may run afoul of the law, that um, it, it's indicative of, of um, 
uh, of self-dealing that um, to the benefit of his family that they, they think reflects poorly on the office, essentially. Yeah, they say that they're concerned about these financial transactions and, and what Doe is doing here, and that usually they, they sort of take a wait-and-see approach, that, that elected officials have should have due process, wait mm-hmm. to see things how, how things play out. But they say um, there's been a pattern with Doe and, and that this is the final straw. I'll add that um, Doe last year paid... Uh, the largest conflict of interest fine in the state of California for the last several years in the entire state out of thousands of elected officials, um, according to state records. And that was over, um, well, half of that fine was regarding uh, lack of disclosure of his role in fundraising into a nonprofit um, that was ultimately paying, much of that money was paying the person who um, who later founded, co-founded this uh, mental health center with his daughter. All right. And um, and so all of this continuing reporting from our Nick Gerda of L.A. is we'll look forward to your continued reporting. And again, um, Andrew Doe has not responded to any of what's been detailed in the reports of last week and this week. Thank you so much, Nick, for talking with us about it. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. L.A.ist reporter Nick Gerda joining us. He covers unhoused communities, but of course here much more in this major Orange County story. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we talk about Care Court's launch in Los Angeles County tomorrow, two months after it debuted in Orange and Riverside counties. We'll talk with the heads of the Care Courts there to find out what sorts of challenges they found, what they've been able to offer through Care Courts, and also talk about what's planned in LA County. That's all when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAist comes from FX's Shogun. Set in Japan in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Torunaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him. When a mysterious European ship is found marooned in a nearby fishing village, its English pilot, John Blackthorne, comes bearing secrets that could tip the balance of power. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai, Shogun is available for your Emmy consideration at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, voted a top international destination spa by readers of Travel and Leisure magazine in 2023. Rancho La Puerta provides three, four, and seven-night summer wellness retreats for anyone who enjoys hiking, mindfulness, and fitness classes in a garden setting on 4,000 verdant acres of nature preserve. Check into summer at Rancho La Puerta, rancholapuerta.com. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Stanford professor Robert Sapolsky, whose new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will, has generated tremendous response. The book's been out almost two months, but I can't wait to talk with him about what the response has been. Uh, His book argues that essentially we don't have free will, that everything is pretty much predetermined, how we're going to respond, what we're going to do, and it's a combination of what happens in utero and what happens to us in our early and later life experiences. Robert Sapolsky joining us coming up later this hour. But right now we turn our attention 
to care courts. Uh, the courts somewhat controversial with those uh, who support them saying this is really the best way to provide services to those who are dealing with serious drug and substance abuse and those who are dealing with significant mental health challenges. The care courts went into effect in Orange and Riverside County a couple of months ago. We talked about them at that point. And then tomorrow it goes into effect in Los Angeles County. Now, these care courts were championed by Governor Gavin Newsom, and the basics of the courts are those living with a serious and untreated mental illness can be referred for a court-ordered voluntary care plan lasting up to two years, and the petition can be filed by those who are professional health workers, first responders, or family members to those who are in crisis. Joining us from Los Angeles County's Department of Mental Health, Jennifer Hunt, who's the Acting Senior Deputy Director for Reentry Services. Thank you so much, Dr. Hunt. We appreciate your being with us. Thank you for the invite. I'm happy to be here. So please tell us uh, how this is going to roll out in Los Angeles County. What what are your plans for CARE Court starting tomorrow? Our plans for CARE Court are that we're going to have our team be ready and available to support individuals that are referred through the petition process. So we have substance abuse counselors, medical caseworkers, senior community health workers, and clinicians that are going to comprise our field-based teams to be able to provide support to the individuals that are referred through the care court petition process. And are these and new- also? Oh, oh go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask if these are new teams you've assembled in response to the care court mandate, or if if this is something that's been going on prior. These are all new teams, so we're excited, and we see the field-based teams that are going to be providing the care court services to be one more piece of our continuum of care here at DMH that we're able to provide to the community. Very good. And and so uh, what what's your sense of what the demand is going to be? Do you Can you predict just uh, very generally the number of people that are going to be coming through care court and, and needing treatment? I don't think any of us can predict it, but I think based on the intent of the legislation and Dr. Galley had shared from Cal HHS that the intent is really to focus on a small group of individuals with high needs. And so we are ready and have the staff to be able to see and embrace those individuals that are referred. So we have teams ready to go across the entire county. We're talking with Jennifer Hunt, who's the Acting Senior Deputy Director of Reentry Services, L.A. County's Department of Mental Health, which starts care courts tomorrow. If you have questions for her, you can join us at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email a question about how care court will operate at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. With us for from Orange County, the Chief of Mental Health and Recovery Services, Veronica Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us. What has Orange County learned about um, care court and trying to match services to the needs there? 
Well, hi, good morning and thank you for having me. Uh, we've learned a lot since October 1st when we kicked off. Um, so far, we've received 35 petitions. And what we've learned is it's a much slower process, I think, than perhaps the greater community uh, thought it might be. Of those 35 petitions that have been received by the court, 14 of them have moved on to my department to begin the relationship building and the outreach to the individual to attempt to get them services and get them into the court process. So for the other 21, are those still in process or has there been reluctance on the part of, of the person identified to, to follow through with the services? What, what status do they have? Yeah, well, the other 21, uh, like you stated, they are in process. We've only had one dismissal, and that dismissal was because uh, they did their diagnosis of schizophrenia uh, was not the cause of them having some issues. Those those were caused by something else. So those uh, 21 really require us to have more than the statutory 14 days to engage, to find, engage, serve, and get somebody into treatment and court. So the judge that uh, we're very uh, happy to have, Judge Betai, who's working with our county behavioral health to give us the time we need to really outreach and start to uh, uh, create a relationship with an individual such that they trust us enough to start to uh, agree to come into treatment. So for the, it sounds like, it, correct me if I'm wrong, among those 21, there's significant numbers where it's, it's kind of a courting process on, on your organization's yes. part to get them to, to feel this is something they're willing to do, that they trust you and that, and that they have a need. Absolutely. Okay. And, and um, are, are, in the cases of people who are referred to care court, are most of those individuals who have been unhoused in Orange County, or what's the mix of those, their circumstances? Uh, of the 14 referrals that I've received uh, to County Behavioral Health, nine have been unhoused, which does not mean literally unhoused. Uh, some of those people are living in vehicles. The others are li living in places that are not their homes, such as perhaps incarceration or hospitals. And so once they were to be discharged, they do not have a place to go. So that's why they're uh, identified as being unhoused. But so far, nine unhoused. I was wondering if if some of those referred for care court would be from family members and, and maybe the person who's in distress is living with the family member and, and there's been um, discord and problems because of the mental health crisis of the person there. And I was wondering if you've received cases uh, that fit that sort of a circumstance. Yes, that, that, that's great insight there. Um, nine of our referrals have been from family members uh, and roommates. Uh, two of our referrals have been from directors of hospitals where the individual is. Uh, one has been from my agency. We've had a few that are self-referrals. And are there any sorts of um, uh, tools that you have available to try and convince the person to seek out care, whether that is medication or other forms of therapeutic intervention, anything that you've got aside from just trying to convince them it's in their own best interests? Sure. Well, we are using a method known as LEAP, L-E-A-P, so listen, empathize, act, and partner. And that is an evidence-based practice to engage someone uh, in um, something like treatment 
especially somebody who might uh, have a symptom of anisognosia, which is a symptom where they don't know that they're sick. And so that's really effective in trying to engage somebody. It's not um, really a transactional relationship we're trying to get. I do this, you do this. It really is about establishing um, whatever this individual is wanting, we want to start where that patient is and help them get to where they're going. While we're doing that, perhaps all they want is a hot meal tonight. We can help them with that. The more that we show we will do what we say we're going to do, that creates the trust. And eventually what we've learned from other counties is that after about 20 to 40 face-to-face -face visits, about 90% of those people engaged will activate into treatment voluntarily. Wow. You know, I was wondering if there's academic study in this area because um, it, it is, uh, you know, it is such a concern with people who, who are not aware that they're in um, distress and, right. and think that, you know, either because they have paranoid thoughts or other things, um, that it's not what's happening to them neurologically that's, that's at play and to know. But that's an impressive rate of, of, of people uh, coming in for help. Also with us, Marcus Cannon, Deputy Director of Forensics, Riverside University. University Health System. Thank you very much, Marcus, for joining us. I appreciate it. What's been your experience in your county? Very similar to what Dr. Kelly shared, and thank you for the opportunity to be on the air. We've had 20 uh, petitions through our civil court process. We also went live the 1st of October. And very similarly to Dr. Kelly, we have a whole host of statuses at this point of where people are at in the process. Um, I think for us, what we've seen as successes and strengths of the program so far are the additional visibility that it's brought to county behavioral health services to let the broader community know what is available. Um, and I think that visibility has helped with access to get additional you know, families and individuals connected who weren't previously connected. And it's it's a tool for families who are concerned about their loved one to ensure that the behavioral health department is focused on their loved one. Um, the challenges that we've seen uh, initially are that this is still a voluntary program. And in terms of uh, the old analogy of carrot and stick, um, it's very much carrot. There's not stick here. And so there are people who are not interested in participating. Uh, and like Dr. Kelly said, we'll continue to make those voluntary outreach and engagement and touches to try to build that relationship. But uh, that doesn't always happen on the timeline that their family member or their loved one who's concerned about them wishes that it would. So that I think will continue to be one of the enduring challenges for the program. Marcus, are there things that your organization can do to help family members navigate this? Because by the time a, a family member petitions a care court for a program for their loved one, they're, I'm sure, so burned out, so frustrated. They've gone through two steps forward, one step back, perhaps had the loved one show great signs of promise and getting better only to have relapse or, or them go off medication that was, that was helping them. What things can you do to help support family members that are going through this? Our county has a program that we call a family advocate program. And these family advocates are staff, professional staff, but who themselves have, have lived this process and they've helped a family member navigate the public mental health system. So they stand ready as, 
allies and advocates to come alongside families, hold families' hand, walk them through the process. I think most other county behavioral health departments, certainly large ones, have some similar program. So I think that's really one of the first things that I would um, suggest for our county that that we are using successfully. Um, and then I think uh, simply the broader education of we have had quite a few people reach out to us because they've heard the publicity around the CARE Act. Um, their loved one has turned out not to qualify for CARE Act itself, but does qualify for other services that we offer. And, and we're proud of uh, a whole host of services from you know children all the way through um, seniors, various specialty populations, specialty clinics, housing resources, vocational programs. So oftentimes I think just being able to communicate to families that there is more help than perhaps they've realized. Um, that's yeah. been a support to families. Lisa in Echo Park asks about tracking people after they've received intensive services because so often there is relapse. And I want to briefly ask each of you about that, and then I need to wrap. Marcus Cannon uh, in Riverside, uh, how do you track people? So... We use an electronic health record system where we, you know, track our, our notes, what services we've provided to people. And I think the good news about CARE Act is the CARE Act is meant as a front door, but it's not meant as the last stop. And so many of these are consumers that are already known to our department, but this CARE Act proceeding brings an additional level of focus and support. Uh, but certainly success okay. would look like continuing to provide supports even after the CARE Act process is over, whether that's through our clinic services or our various mobile teams throughout the county. Veronica Kelly, is it similar in Orange? Yeah, it is. And I, I think the word track is sort of throwing me. So we don't track individuals. Uh, we do have record of when people come in to see us and are very mindful of people's civil rights uh, and protections. But when someone enters my system, uh, I know where they've been and what they have, what services they've received. And the idea is then that helps me to uh, have a continuum of care so that if they came in on a certain medication and we know it worked very well, that would be something that I would want to continue. And care does have built into it processes for us to uh, watch someone's um, trajectory with regard to their illness and their recovery. Yeah, I think I think what Lisa was referring to, not like a law enforcement sense of tracking, but just staying in touch with someone and and right. and uh, that if they, they are need again, that it just doesn't wait so long before they get the services next right. time. Uh, and Jennifer Hunt, uh, yeah, that question for you as well. What do you have in place to make sure this is an ongoing relationship? Well, like my colleagues, Dr. Kelly and Mr. Cannon said in our in our neighboring counties, that we're just emphasizing that we have a whole continuum of services. So while somebody may come in related to care, that as that time uh, of that program may be over, we have other services to ensure that they continue to be offered resources within the the larger county family. All right. I want to thank you all so much. Jennifer Hunt, Acting Senior Deputy Director, Reentry Services, L.A. County Department of Mental Health, tomorrow, Care Court. 
comes into play in Los Angeles County. It's been up and running for two months in Orange County, where Veronica Kelly is the Chief of Mental Health and Recovery Services, and in Riverside County, where Marcus Cannon is Deputy Director of the Riverside University Health System. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we talk with Stanford University professor, interdisciplinarian Robert Sapolsky. His latest book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. You've probably seen this book. It's been so written about and responded to over the past nearly two months since it was published. I wanted him to join us and talk about the response to his book because he's very conflict-diverse, just how he describes himself as being wired. I want to hear about all the pushback on his idea that we really don't have free will. We'll be back with the professor in just 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from FX's Shogun. Set in Japan in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Torunaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him when a mysterious European ship is found marooned in a nearby fishing village. Its English pilot, John Blackthorne, comes bearing secrets that could tip the balance of power. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai, Shogun is available for your Emmy consideration at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort with 84 years of wellness experience providing summer vacations centered on mindfulness and well-being. Activities include sunrise hikes, water classes, yoga, and spa therapies, all set in a backdrop of a dreamy summer sky. A six-acre organic garden provides fresh fruits and vegetables daily. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, long-term care, the challenges of paying for it and having enough people who are working in that field to provide the care needed. We've never had so many people age 65 and older. We've never had the need that we do now for long-term care because of how long people are living and later in life the amount of care needed, whether in-home or in an institutional setting. We'll talk about long-term care insurance, how it fits into that as the price for those premiums has accelerated even more than the rate of inflation. But we turn our attention right now to Robert Sapolsky, who's Stanford University professor of biology, neurological sciences, and neurosurgery. His interdisciplinary approach is at the heart of his latest book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Robert Sapolsky, so good to have you with us today on Air Talk. Well, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. This, of course, comes out of your many decades of work with uh, a wide range of primates, including humans. And um, before we get into the response to your book, which I'm so curious about, what's led you to the determination that we as humans don't really have free will? Well, it has pretty unscientific roots in me in that I was 14 when I decided we're just biological machines, uh, even though I couldn't quite express it that way then. And all I've been doing since then, studying the brain, studying the behavior, hormonal basis, evolutionary basis, all of that. And it just seems clear when you look at all the bits and pieces that make us who we are. Uh, there's no room for the conventional sense of free will in there. 
And if if you had a computer that was powerful enough and and somehow you could you could come up with all the data points of an individual's life from in utero to early childhood experiences, you could feed that all in. It, is then your argument that you could absolutely predict how that person would behave during each moment of their lives? Uh, no, definitely not, because of really interesting stuff that goes on in complicated systems like societies or brains or brain cells and such, which is uh, this whole field, chaoticism, emergent complexity, that means nonlinear stuff happens where you don't get that sort of predictability. But that should not be mistaken for a system then that is non-deterministic, that is somehow free of what came before. And and so if um, if free will is is not possible, then um, what are we're just our behavior is just the sum of all these different episodes throughout the course of our development. Well, basically, you know, why did somebody just do this behavior because of what came just before that? And what came just before that and before that all the way back. And when you look at those influences, what you see is we are nothing more or less than the sum of biology over which we had no control and its interactions with environment over which we had no control. And here we are having become the sort of person we are because of those things that came before. So how is it that you have people who are... Uh, raised in very similar environments, um, would arguably have have similar developmental experiences in utero, uh, and and then make decisions or what we would call decisions uh, that are very different in the course of their life. W- would this be environmentally based that would lead them to make those different decisions? Yep, and I think the key there is the the phrase relatively similar environments some of the things we've been learning you know is subtle subtle stuff in environment subtle stuff in biology turns out to make enormous differences just to give one sense of this since you mentioned sort of fetal life you have identical twins in utero they're genetically identical by a certain simplistic notion of what genes are about they should be identical individuals when they're born but at birth, they already have very different aspects of gene regulation. And what's that about? Things as crazy as do they have one placenta that they share or two separate ones? And how much of this nutrient or that hormone was going in the blood vessel to this fetus and not to the other one? And that stuff turns out to make a difference. In other words, there's biology, there's environment stuff going on beneath the surface that we haven't a clue of. We're talking with Stanford University professor and best-selling author Robert M. Sapolsky, author of Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And if you have questions for the professor, we welcome them at 866-893-5722, or you can email your inquiry to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. When we come back, we'll be asking him about the response to his book, And also, even if it's true we don't have free will or our free will is significantly limited, 
Is there a risk in living our lives as though we don't have free will? And and starting with that as our philosophical baseline. We're at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by Stanford University professor Robert Sapolsky. He's professor of biology, neurological sciences, and neurosurgery, author of best selling books like Behave, but his new book, Determined, subtitled The Science of Life Without Free Will, is one that's gotten tremendous response to it, in which he argues that after his many decades of research on a wide range of primates, he's determined we don't have free will. We're at 866-893-5722. Richard in Huntington Beach emailed us, if what we do is predetermined, then what is the use of writing a book urging people to change or eliminate punishments like prison or fines for actions defined as crimes? If a criminal can't decide to change behavior, how can legislators change theirs? Writing a book that asks for a change in how society works implies that we can make conscious decisions about how our society will work. That's Richard in Huntington Beach, Professor Sapolsky. Fantastic question. And it gets to one of the things that sticks in people's jaws, throats, whatever the cliche is, um, about the notion of there being no free will, which is, ah, if everything is determined, nothing can change. And nothing could be further from that. All you have to do is look at unbelievable cases of individuals changing the ex white supremacist who's now working for tolerance societies changing all of that but the key clarification is this intuitive misplaced sense we have in free will makes us think when a change occurs that we chose to change and instead we are changed by circumstance let me give like one example, changed by circumstance, two individuals will undergo the same circumstance and come out changed, but changed in different ways because they went into it being different sort of people. You go to some inspirational movie and you come out changed by it. You come out saying, wow, that was great. It's amazing to see how one person can make a difference. Tomorrow, I'm going to volunteer for Amnesty International. And the person who sat next to them and watched the same movie comes out of there changed and says, wow, I can't believe how emotionally manipulative that movie was. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to look up every movie this director has made and make sure I never watch another one of them. Both of them have been changed, but changed in different ways because both of them came into that experience having been turned due to the sort of person they are by the biology and the environment that came before them. Since Richard raised the issue of the criminal justice system, one of the reasons we have a criminal justice system, in addition to having consequences for antisocial behavior, is the separating out of people that might have a negative influence um, on society. And so I'm wondering if, if, in fact, the argument that you're making does argue for separation because 
because if there are people that are going to negatively influence others around them and they have limited free will to be able to guard against that, does that argue for people who have extreme antisocial behavior to keep them separated, at least for a time, from others? Great. Um, and first off, admitting right off the bat, amid lots of neuroscientists not having a whole lot of faith in there being free will, I'm out on the lunatic fringe in terms of saying <laughs> none whatsoever. And if you go through the logic, what you come up with afterward is praise and reward and blame and punishment make no sense whatsoever because we had nothing to do with whatever our behavior is. And at one end of the, of the uh, spectrum that produces this conclusion that meritocracies make no sense. And at the other end, punishment makes no sense either. It's exactly what you outline, which is people have become who they've become because of things they had no control over. Oh my God, is this guy saying that we should just have murderers running around on the streets? Obviously not, but we have to have a view that approaches something more what people in the field would call a quarantine model. You got a car, its brakes don't work, you don't know how to fix them, and it's dangerous. If it's out on the street, it's going to hit somebody, it's dangerous to society, all of that. And what you do is you quarantine it. You don't drive it, but you don't go out every morning with a sledgehammer and hit the car over the hood as punishment because its brakes don't work, and you don't preach to it. You just make sure it's constrained from that and you do some work to figure out why car brakes break down, sort of root causes, which sounds like totally mechanistic and, oh my God, it's turning us into car engines or whatever. But we do that all the time. There are circumstances where you have a human who is dangerous to people around them. You have to protect people from them. And that could be your five-year-old who has a nose cold. And the rule is if your kid is sneezing, keep them home from school tomorrow so they don't infect everyone. Quarantine them and you keep your kid home. But you don't say to your kid, you can't play with your toys today because you are an antisocial sneezer or something. And you don't preach to them about how they have a bad soul. And you do some research as to what causes nose colds, but you find a way in which you could subtract out blame and responsibility and still keep society safe. And what you see when you do that is the roof doesn't cave in, and it's a much more humane place if we don't burn people at the stake for having nose colds. We're talking with Robert M. Sapolsky, Stanford University professor, author of Determined, a Science of Life Without Free Will. John, in West Los Angeles, your question for the professor. Yes, uh, I would like to separate out two questions. One, one, two statements. One statement is, there is no free will. This is something an entity that had free will could observe and look at and evaluate scientifically. One statement, there is no free will. Then there is the statement, I believe there is no free will. That is a contradictory statement. You cannot say, I believe there is no free will, because as soon as you say believe, you are initiating an action which implies free will. So the statement, there is no free will, is a scientific statement that a being that only a being that had free will could evaluate and decide if it's true. I believe there is no free will okay. is a self-contradictory statement. Uh, Professor Sapolsky, your response to John's question or statement. Yeah. 
This takes us back to the scenario I mentioned a few minutes ago, two people in a movie theater. They each come out of it believing they have formed a decision that represents, reflects their own agency, all of that. You can watch a thunderstorm that like wreaks havoc with somebody's crops or whatever. And depending on the circumstances that made you who you are, you could come out of it believing that was caused by El Nino or whatever meteorologists think about, or you could come out of it believing that it was caused by witches, by the old woman with no teeth down on the edge of the village there who concocted some potion and thus controlled the weather. And in both cases, you have a belief. One is more based on our contemporary thinking about the nature of how the universe works, but you have a belief. And just because you have a belief and act on it, you go and like charge her with witchcraft doesn't mean you are acting rationally out of some sort of agency that actually is based on how stuff works. Robert Sapolsky, thank you so much for being with us. I know, you, you know, you say you're someone who really isn't wired for conflict, and yet you've had so much response to this book. Uh, thank you for joining us and talking about it. We appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me on. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Robert Sapolsky, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. So many other great listener questions we didn't have time for in this short segment. But thank you so much, as always, for your participation. We have much more to come in the second hour of Air Talk. I'll tell you about it momentarily. Support for LAist comes from FX's The Bear. Season two of the Emmy-winning comedy follows Carmi, Sidney, Richie, and the rest of the crew as they work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Idebury, and Eben Moss Backrack. Television Academy members can watch all episodes of The Bear at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank, an old man said to me, won't see another one, and then he sang a song, the rare old mountain dew, I turned my face away. Fairy tale of New York that the voice of Shane McGowan, the front man for the Irish band The Pogues. McGowan died at the age of 65. Uh, he passed away today. Uh, his wife, journalist Victoria Mary Clark, announced his death, gave no other details, but he had had some struggles with his health. 
and uh, gave rather boozy performances over the years. But the Pogues melding Celtic music, that traditional Irish sound with the spirit of punk rock, a particularly big group back in the 1980s. Again, Shane McGowan, the front man of the Pogues, dead at the age of 65. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, it's Thursday, so it's TV Talk. Our critics are going to tell us about the best of new and returning series, but we're also going to be talking about our listeners' favorite holiday-themed television specials. So we'll be talking about that and be thinking about ones that you particularly look forward to and maybe weren't just your favorites when you were a kid, if they've been out there for years, but also uh, uh, of your own kids. (laughs) So maybe multi-generational. That's coming out later this hour. But first, a recent article uh, in the New York Times and uh, KFF Health News by Jordan Rao and Janelle Alicia takes a look at the issues plaguing long-term care insurance. Now, we've never had so many people age 65 and older in this country. We've never had so many people in need of long-term care. That figure is only going to be growing in the years ahead. And there are key challenges, such as having enough providers of care, having those health care professionals available, whether in a person's home or in an institutional setting, to provide the care. And the other is paying for it, long-term care care insurance devised as a way so that people over a period of even decades could be paying in advance for the insurance that would cover them when they need help in or out of the home. Joining us, though, to talk about the challenges that have emerged in the long-term care insurance market is Jordan Rao, senior correspondent for KFF Health News. Jordan, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks, Larry. Good to be back. So I'm one of those. I actually have long-term care insurance, but the premiums just continue to go up and up and up faster than the rate of inflation. Why has this become such a troubled market? Um, it has. Uh, well, you're one of the few that actually has it. I mean, fewer <laughs> than 5% of, of people uh, do have it these days. And it's really a market that has never worked. Um, back in the 80s, uh, the insurers guessed wrongly estimated wrongly how many people would end up keeping it and using it. And they ended up paying out in claims far more than they uh, were taking in. And so as a result, they've been spending the last couple of decades uh, raising premiums, in some cases significantly, for people um, in order to bring themselves back into a a solid financial uh, state. And of course, it sort of is a recurring, this is a, you know, a bit of a death spiral in, in, uh, in economics, where the higher the, the rates and the costs, the fewer people uh, get the insurance, so the risks pool is smaller, so it's more unstable. So it just hasn't, voluntary insurance just really hasn't worked as an effective way to um, to deal with the long-term care uh, needs of you know millions and millions of older Americans as well as disabled Americans. So uh, Medi-Cal or Medicaid nationally right. will step in if someone's exhausted their own personal finances, but I assume that that comes with a variety of restrictions e- even when Medi-Cal picks up the bill. Yeah, I mean, in California, Medi-Cal is, is better than in a lot of states, and um, you do have to exhaust your um, your income pretty much. You've got to be making almost nothing. But there is a big change coming for California in January where you don't have they're not going to judge you on your assets as much. And this is actually a huge change. I mean, there's a couple of of, ex, uh, of uh, exceptions for those people who have you know multiple cars or houses. 
but um, but in the regardless, if you it's a very tight income level. So if you're making a lot in retirement, either through a pension or 401k or something else, you may not qualify. And that's been sort of the problem is that you have to be pretty much destitute to qualify for Medicaid or Mal or Medi-Cal and, and get that coverage. So if someone is living off of uh, a limited social security income, for example, they might in California in the future be able to qualify for long-term care? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't I don't know the exact threshold of, of where that would be. But um, I mean, millions of people do get it now. And it does cover uh, people who are going to be, you know, if you're in a nursing home for a long-term time, it will pay for that, which is essential because nursing homes are, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a month e easily. Uh, you can get uh, in-home services if uh, you qualify for that. Um, and in some counties, but not all counties in California, it will also help pay for assisted living, which has been one of the huge gaps in uh, long-term care uh, because assisted living is extremely expensive. People mm -hmm. prefer, you know, if you don't need that level of nursing care to live there, uh, but it, it really isn't there isn't a public payer for that. We're talking with Jordan Rao, senior correspondent for KFF Health News. Also with us is Gopi Shah Goda, senior fellow with the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Gopi, thank you for being with us. Gopi, do we have you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, Thanks great. for having okay. me. Thanks so much. Uh, so Jordan was describing the long-term care insurance market as uh, a classic death spiral. Is there anything that you think could save this private model of insurance? Well, yeah, the, the insurance market has had a lot of difficulties, and it hasn't been serving consumers well. Um, it actually hasn't been a boon for insurance companies either. And so there's there's a lot of problems that are making this this market not function very well. And, you know, some some people think uh, there's actually issues on both sides of the market. You can think of the the insurance company side, which economists like to call kind of the supply side of the market, has trouble providing contracts that people would value that would actually reimburse them for all of the long-term care costs that they incur. And there's also problems on the other side of the market, the consumer side, which economists like to call the demand side of the market, where um, people may not completely realize that this is a big expenditure risk that they're exposed to, that you know some people may believe that Medicare might step in and cover some of these costs. And then be surprised that they don't. Um, there's also uh, there's there's other issues that you know could keep people from not purchasing insurance, even if it did exist in a way that they would value. Um, the premiums could go up a lot, and they might be worried that the um, insurer may go out of business and leave them hanging when they actually need their coverage. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Jordan was talking about the the um, misestimations that were made by the insurers when they set up their model for long-term care insurance. One of them I know that you've identified is uh, gender, because women live on average longer than men and are widowed longer, so may find themselves on their own and and may have a greater need for long-term care. That was not factored into the setting of premiums. 
That's right. In the early years of these policies, they tended to be sold on a gender neutral basis and uh, charging the same premiums for both men and women, um, which was kind of a puzzle because women do have higher expected costs than men. I don't know the details about whether that sort of maybe you can think of as mispricing led to some of the financial difficulties that insurers have had with these policies. But since then, there have been a lot of changes in that, actually. A lot of companies now sell policies with uh, different premiums for men and women. One of the challenges for younger people buying the insurance when their premiums are going to be lower is it's difficult to know what the costs of long-term care are going to be decades into the future. And um, at least when I purchased mine, you could, you could buy it with inflation protection at a fixed mm-hmm. amount, but it's so much more expensive to do that. So, you know, it's also very complicated for the customer to navigate this whole thing. And I have to assume that complexity also w- discouraged a lot of people who might have considered buying it away from purchasing it. I agree with that. There's a lot of different facets of these policies that people have to navigate and and understand in order to, you know, make this financial decision. And what you were saying about, um, you know, what the policy will actually provide when you need the care is is very true. So if you buy a policy in your 50s, you may not use it until you're in your 80s. And the cost of care could have increased dramatically over that period of time. You know, if you had a policy that could provide unlimited benefits, so whatever costs you incur, you know, they'll reimburse you for that, then that would protect consumers from that risk of the cost of care increasing rapidly. But we don't really see policies like that in the market. Well, and if they um, existed... Which is very different... I assume they would be just prohibitively expensive because of the exposure insurers might take decades in the future. Exactly. And but that's very different from other types of insurance contracts that we do see in the market for, say, auto insurance or health insurance, where you are actually reimbursed for the costs that you incur, you know, except for some kind of deductible or copay. Um, But it's very different in the in the long term care market where you might still be exposed to quite a bit of financial risk, even if you have insurance. Now, Gopi, I understand California is looking into the possibility of funding long-term care through state payroll taxes. Um, so what would be involved with that, and do we have a good model for a state uh, that's doing that? Yeah, well, you might know that Washington State recently started a new program called Washington Cares, which uh, has this flavor of uh, payroll tax that applies to all workers. There are certain eligibility requirements for when you will be receiving benefits. And those benefits are not unlimited, just like we were talking before, similar to private insurance, it would provide you with a certain daily benefit um, for a period of about a year. And so it might not cover the full costs of care for someone needing long-term care, but I think it's a great start and You know, I think the challenges with these kinds of programs are to ensure that they are set up in a way that um, encourages people to sort of be enrolled, you know, as universal as possible, because you need that spreading of risks across people who use the the benefit and those who will not. 
Um, but also that it's sort of financially sustainable for a long time because you might run into this issue where, you know, the payroll taxes are not large enough to support the actual costs of the benefits at some point, and then that will cause the payroll tax rate to increase, which has a whole lot of other implications. I think what what is also really interesting about the way that Washington set up this program is that they are, from what I understand, trying to work with insurers to develop products that would allow people to top up that benefit to something larger, which could allow people to sort of, you know, insure more of their risk and the insurance companies may be more willing to provide these types of policies, given that there is already this base level of coverage in, in, in Washington for all residents. One of the concerns I think, you know, Californians always have when the state is providing some sort of a, of a health care benefit is the potential for fraud. Because California, as, as you know, we saw, it wasn't health care, but with the Employment Development Department, special unemployment funds, the state has a very difficult time uh, in tracking uh, and dealing with, with fraudulent billing. And, and I'm just wondering if California adopted this model of using payroll taxes to fund long-term care, um, you know, what would be the ways that the state would be able to assure that, that there weren't scams being run and people receiving the money through dummy companies or, or just fraudulent claims? Yeah, no, that is a concern of any type of program of this sort. And, you know, having a way to assess individuals' needs of care is something that a lot of, you know, insurers have to contend with. Um, but also other types of public programs that Washington State, will, of course, will have to contend with, too. And it's not an easy issue. Um, but having kind of there are pretty clear triggers usually in both private policies and what Washington State has developed in terms of the limitations in your what's called activities of daily living need to be in order to trigger those benefits from being to being paid. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about long-term care insurance. We appreciate it. That's Gopi Shah Goda, who's senior fellow with the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and Jordan Rao, who wrote about this uh, in the New York Times, senior correspondent for KFF Health News. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, TV talk with our critics with the best of new and returning series. And later this hour, we open up the phones to hear from you, your favorite holiday specials of all time. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Tomorrow morning at 10, it's Film Week. I'll be with you with critics Claudia Puig and Leo Lowenstein. They'll tell us about the Japanese thriller Monster. We'll also hear about a documentary on one of my favorite filmmakers, Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, is the documentary. We'll hear about that. Uh, we've got a number of other films that are out 
That's all tomorrow on Film Week at 10 o'clock right here on LAS 89.3. We'll also be talking tomorrow with the author of the revised and expanded Christmas Movies book from TCM, Turner Classic Movies. Jeremy Arnold will be with us to talk about the book, which has 35 classics to celebrate this season. And later this hour, we'll talk about holiday television specials and uh, favorites of our critics as well as, uh, as from our audience members as well. But let's take a look at what's new and returning for television. We're joined by critics Christina Escobar of uh, latinamedia.co uh, and Steve Green, freelance TV critic, joining us as well. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with you on Slow Horses, this British thriller starring Gary Oldman. It's back with season three. Season three, yes. Uh, so Slow Horses, uh, the idea behind the show is that there's a group of people within the British spy community that aren't in your elite level MI5, uh, either for reasons why they, they either messed up or, or couldn't make the grade in the first place, are sort of assigned to more low-level espionage tactics. And in the first uh, two seasons, Regardless, they keep getting drawn into these uh, wide-ranging, difficult situations uh, to try and and overcome. Uh, Season three, I think... Is, is the season that I I like the most of this show because I think we've seen so many spy stories that are built around the destruction of cities or trying to avert these sort of widespread uh, uh, catastrophes. And to to take this subgenre and dial it down to really interpersonal uh, relationships and people mobilizing to save one of their own is, is really fascinating. And I, I think the way this has evolved... Uh, the supporting cast of the show, aside from Gary Oldman, uh, you've got Jack Loudon, who's a, a, a fantastic actor, very commanding screen presence. Um, he's taken a step up in this season, and I think the show is better for it. And uh, Kristen Scott Thomas also uh, here. And and the showrunner here, Will Smith, uh, he worked as supervising producer on Veep on HBO, mm-hmm. was a writer on the BBC show The Thick of It, uh, not the Will Smith you think of, yes. The Fresh Prince, another yes. Will Smith, yes. but but um, I I just think this this is one that has a real cult following, doesn't it? This series it, it's based on a series of popular books, which I think certainly helps. Uh, and I think uh, Gary Oldman's presence in the show he's very crusty, he's very ornery, he's very sloppy, and so I think anytime you get to see him really make big acting choices, it's really fun. And I think now the show has is using him in the perfect mode. It's not putting him front and center all the time, so that you have to rely on his personality. Like I said, that supporting cast really takes a, a step up this season, and I think the show is better for it. Slow Horses, the British series, a season three streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. First two episodes are out. There'll be a total of six episodes over the coming weeks. Uh, Paramount Plus streaming the docu-series De La Calle, which uh, was created by Nick Barilli. Christina, please tell us about it. Yeah, so this is a really fun show where uh, the host, Nick, travels kind of Anthony Bourdain style across the world. He starts in New York. He spends most of his time in Latin America. Um, He also goes to Spain and investigating 
Urbano music, its histories, its antecedents, the ways that different countries contribute to it. And I think for both reggaeton heads and people who are sort of more new to the genre, maybe who only listen to Bad Bunny, there's a lot there to learn and explore. I know I was writing down artists' names as Nick was writing them and have been since listening to them on Spotify. Um, but I think it's a pretty fun series to watch and get to learn a little bit about the genre that may feel new to many folks, but actually has a really long and interesting and storied history. We're talking about the docu-series De La Calle on Paramount+. Plus. Steve, what did you think of it? Uh, I, I appreciate documentary series like this. Um, you know, Christina said, like Anthony Bourdain style, that these interviews with people who uh, have, have made... Uh, this music history, it's not happening in some sealed off studio. It's not happening in some anonymous place. It's out in uh, the environments where this came to life. And so I think you get a better appreciation of what went into the making of this music and the making of this history by seeing people move through those spaces and, and not just, not just uh, music, but the, uh, the, the greater culture at large, uh, you know, visual art, uh, you know, all the things that go into uh, making a environment where this music can can come out of. De La Calle, again, all eight episodes are out on Paramount Plus, uh, featuring journalist Nick Barilli. Black Cake streams on Hulu. The mystery series was created by Marissa Joe Sarar, Stephanie Jacob, and Rupert Evans star in this series. Christina, please tell us about Black Cake. Yeah, so Black Cake is, as you mentioned, a mystery series. Um, it follows two timelines. Um, actually, maybe you would even say three, multiple timelines. And it's the story of one woman as she came to age um, and sort of murder mystery, identity mystery. And it and it follows her family, her children, um, and their perceptions of her as she's passed away and left them tapes. Um, and what I loved about this series is just how different it is from so many other things. It, the main protagonist, she is Black, Caribbean, and Chinese. And I've just, I've never watched anything from that particular perspective before. Um, and to see it done in these sort of lush tones and these huge, beautiful production budgets, and to have it be a really thoughtful exploration of identity and motherhood and family and race and gender. It just creates what I thought was a really lovely story. You know, it's at times melodramatic, but I think that can be fun. I don't say that in a bad way. It's definitely like a watchable, fun show that I particularly appreciated. We're talking about Black Cake. It's streaming on Hulu. The first three episodes uh, are, oh, I'm sorry, uh, looks like actually all of uh, the episodes mm. are out because uh, all of them came out in November uh, and we're at the end of that month. So they're all out. <laughs> uh, High on the Hog from Netflix uh, is a documentary from uh, food writer Stephen uh, Satterfield. Steve, what do you think about this? I think this actually makes a perfect uh, companion piece of De La Calle. Uh, it, it does for food what I think that show does for music in that uh, it, it follows food from the African diaspora. So uh, looking at how uh, the, the food traditions that we have here in the U.S. and at various places around the world have their roots in, in, in African culture and African cuisine, African food. And I think another thing that the show does really well is that it is also 
it takes it out of the studio. It takes it out. You know, the the, the conversations that that uh, are part of this show aren't being done inside some hermetically sealed environment. Uh, they're in uh, they're in restaurants. They're in kitchens. Uh, this is a show that's built around talking about how food relates to culture, and in turn. I think this is one of the best shows about American history. Um, this is this is not just so focused on food as a as a product or as something to so to be consumed. Uh, it really is built around centering food as part of a conversation about where the the roots of this country come from and how you can track those throughout the world. Well, and and what's fascinating is uh, with so many different combinations of cuisine, it opens our our eyes to different cultures. I, I was seeing a piece about um, a, a guy, I think he's in Austin, Texas, who's of Egyptian background, who's opened a barbecue place, but he uses the kinds of spices, the flavors of his own childhood from Egypt in the barbecue. That he, So he's combining this traditional American uh, Southern cuisine with, with the flavors of his youth. And then that opens up, of course, for the people eating there, all kinds of aspects of culture. And food does that. Yes. No, and I, I think so much documentary series these days, uh, I, I hate to use this word, but it does feel like content. Uh, and this is a show that I think is very purposely pushing against that, that, that this is something that is inspiring you to go out and investigate and broaden your horizons. And if this is food that is part of your experience, then it gives you a greater appreciation of where it comes from. It uh, builds off the book High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America by Jessica B. Harris. But it's uh, Stephen Satterfield, who is uh, the, the main uh, voice and presence on the Netflix documentary High on the Hog, all four episodes are out right now. We're talking with our film, or I should say TV critic, Steve Green and Christina Escobar joining us. But I want to hear from you in just a few minutes. What are your favorite holiday TV specials of all time? The ones that really connected with you, that maybe you've been around long enough that you also showed them to your kids, or maybe ones that are more recent, that are just uh, terrific examples of themes of of the holidays. Uh, please join us with that 866-893-5722. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. And of course, we'll ask our TV experts who are here with us for their favorites. 866-893-5722. You can also email your favorite holiday specials to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. A Murder at the End of the World is on FX Network, streaming the next day on, uh, actually it's only on Hulu, pardon me, it's not on FX, uh, and uh, the series stars Emma Corrin, Clive Owen, and Harris Dickinson. Uh, Christina, please tell us about A Murder at the End of the World. Yeah, so this is another fun murder mystery type show. I think maybe it's the season for them. Um, and it is um, a little bit darker. So it is set where Clive Owen plays a billionaire who's assembled this group of um, 
folks of all sorts of different talents and industries, but the idea being that they're the best in their fields, whisk them away to a resort surrounded by snow, icy, all of that, and then there's a murder, and our heroine has to try to solve it more or less on her own. Um, and that plot is also juxtaposed with a previous plot where she um, is trying to solve a murder that she eventually writes a book about, and that's kind of how she gets invited. So in some ways, you know, it's going to draw antecedents to, um, you know, other pieces with billionaires locked away, murders, all of that. But this one is a little bit more serious, I would say, than some of the other ones. Um, and what it does nicely is play with ideas around gender and age and exceptionality, um, sort of what is genius, what isn't. Um, and it also just has a really standout cast. You know, everybody is very interested, interesting in it. They all deliver really phenomenal performances. I always watch anything Alisi Braga is in. You may remember her from Queen of the South. So far, she hasn't had much to do yet in the episodes that are out, but you really see some interesting and nuanced performances that are pretty fun in this one. And the murder mystery is compelling as well all right we're talking about a murder at the end of the world steve i i think the the show that i kept thinking about watching this was devs um another fx hulu show that came out a couple of years ago uh kind of similarly structured following a character entering a world that they don't really understand and then trying to figure out the reasons why someone they care about uh met an untimely end uh i i think i appreciate that this is a detective story that is so rely on atmosphere. You know, it take, takes place in this sort of remote Icelandic uh, hotel resort. Uh, and and it, the show really takes advantage of being in that, that environment and not just relying on your typical detective story tropes. And I think this also gets at our cultural relationship with true crime in a really interesting way. I think that's that's there are a lot of shows within the last year or so that are really starting to take a look at what that does when everybody in society sort of becomes an amateur detective and what that does to our relationships with each other and and what it does to how you relate to the world and and where you search for clues and and what happens when you sort of follow that to its logical endpoint. All right, we're going to when we come back talk with our critics about their picks for top holiday programming, some of their favorite specials. It could even be a holiday themed episode of a series, but more generally we're talking about holiday specials. I want to hear from you. What holiday special do you look forward to seeing maybe even every year, year in and year out? I never get tired of a Charlie Brown Christmas. I could, I could watch that an infinite number of... The Vince Guaraldi score alone makes it worth watching. But uh, just for for those of us in that age group, very familiar from childhood, but our kids watched it too. And, and uh, that's one that's lasted three or more generations. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email your pick for your favorite holiday special on television, atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name back in 90 seconds.
Support for LAist comes from FX's The Bear. Season two of the Emmy-winning comedy follows Carmi, Sidney, Richie, and the rest of the crew as they work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Idebury, and Eben Moss Backrack. Television Academy members can watch all episodes of The Bear at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com The great Bill Melendez directed A Charlie Brown Christmas, which debuted in 1965. And you can't think of that great special, which continues to be watched by millions of people every year, without thinking of Vince Guaraldi's incredible piano score for it. And I'd heard that Charles Schultz had to actually be convinced to to have a jazz score to it, that Bill Melendez, the director, said, hey, well, Guaraldi's, he's a Bay Area guy, you're from Northern California. And that's what convinced Schultz to let Guaraldi have it. And then he loved it when he heard what the score was actually like. But Schultz apparently more classical than jazz fan. But anyway, we have the iconic score from that. I'd love to hear from you. What are your favorite holiday specials? If you have a favorite uh, TV show episode related to the holidays, that's also okay. But the specials are our main focus at 866-893-5722. Or you can email your pick to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Let's talk with Misty in City Terrace. Then we'll hear from our TV critics. Misty, thank you for joining us. What are your favorites? Hi, Larry. A huge fan of the show. Thank I you. am uh, love all the Rankin and Bass specials from the 60s. Rudolph. Such as Rudolph, Year Without a Santa Claus, Nestor the Long-Eared Donkey, um, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. The list goes on and on. And again, I grew up in the 70s. Watch them all. I still watch them every single year with my children, and I just love them. I love those Rankin Bass. And, you know, the animation is fairly limited, but there's something so comforting about it. Rudolph is a musical, of course, as well. And, uh, yeah, I I like they're they're so charming, those Rankin and Bass. And our animation critic, Charles Solomon, very high on on those shows as well. Misty, I'm so glad that you brought those up. Thanks very much. 866-893-5722. Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co. What are some of your favorite uh, holiday TV specials? 
Yeah, my favorite ones are also the classics. I love the Charlie Brown, and I also love the 1966 version of How the Grinch Stole oh, Christmas. Boris Karloff, yes. <laughs> it's so good. That song gets stuck in my head. I can hear that narrator <laughs> all the time. I do. I hear it when I read that book to my kids. Um, and, you know, both of those came out before I was born, a good 20 years before I was born. And I watch them every year. Now I show them to my kids. We watch them as a family. I want to say that Charlie Brown song is going to be playing probably <laughs> once a day in my house yeah. until Christmas. Um, and I think what makes them work so well is, yes, they have a simplicity, but they also have that classic message, right, that it's not about the gifts. It's about family and mm -hmm. love. Um, and I just think that that's perennially useful um, mm. and a nice reminder every year. Oh, I love it. Um, James in Pasadena says, my favorite is Disney's Prep and Landing from 2009 about the elves who prep people's homes for Santa's arrival on Christmas Eve. I saw that the first year it was out, and I really enjoyed it, and I think they've done some sequels to it, too. But I also am a big fan of Disney's Prep and Landing. Very funny, very, very well done. Uh, Steve, what are your picks for best holiday TV specials? Um, you know, I, when, when we were talking about this, uh, my my head went to the 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 episodes that aren't necessarily specials, but episodes from a show where Christmas plays a big part. Um, and one of the one of the ones that came to mind was the the last episode of the first season of Starstruck, which if people haven't seen, I would recommend to go out to go to Max and watch it. Uh, one of the best rom coms of the last ten years, I would say. And the end of the first season culminates at a Christmas party. Uh, you know, there's a will they, won't they that goes throughout the whole entire season. And uh, someone shows up to a Christmas party and things kind of go from there. And I think it gets at the idea that the special parts of Christmas aren't the the the, the gift wrapping, aren't, you know, in this case, the British show. So the Christmas crackers, like, like those are those are fun traditions. But what is best is what comes after that the the downtime in between where you're talking about what comes next in your life where you're you're poking fun at your friends and you're you're pushing them towards what you hope is going to be you know a, a nice relationship and something good to have in your life so that, i think that's it's, it's heartwarming yeah. in a different way when when you were growing up did you watch any of the holiday oh, specials as a kid i'm 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 glad someone brought up the rank and bass uh, yeah. specials uh the, just hearing the words nestor the long-eared christmas donkey i am <laughs> sensing myself starting to tear up a little bit uh there is one image from that that if you've seen it you know what it is and i'm i'm uh yeah and and I think what Christina was talking about with with Charlie Brown and the Grinch is is that uh, not only are they entertaining to watch, you could freeze frame uh, so many of those and and just the the cell animation. Uh, like I'm thinking of the last shot from uh, Charlie Brown Christmas with all the all the kids like leaning their heads back and their mouths wide open singing, or uh, when the when the Grinch uh, sort of gets the strength and and he's beaming and all those lines are coming off of his face. Like those that's that's what Christmas is about. Those those images that stick with you. Yeah, Chuck Jones, of course, uh, the animator for. Uh, Dr. Seuss's uh, Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and and he's brilliant, of course, doing so many of the classic Warner Brothers cartoons and then also uh, carrying out that great animation. Let's talk with Adam in Mar Vista. Adam, what's your favorite of the holiday Christmas specials? The Andy Williams Christmas specials that yeah. aired every year on NBC. And what was great about them, they were rather hokey. They were kind of corny. You had the Osmond family and acts like that. But it was at a time when there were three networks. 
And so you had tens and tens of millions of people across America all watching it. Uh, and it's also um, the source of a lot of great music that, you know, you hear in shopping malls every day during Christmas season, like it's the most wonderful time of the year. That song was actually commissioned for the show and popularized on the show by Andy Williams, who's kind of a, a figure who's kind of been lost to time, unless you're somebody who goes to Branson, Missouri, Branson, Missouri. But <laughs> that was something kind of special. Just yeah, the way yeah. you had the whole country tuning in to this uh, this variety show for Christmas. And I don't remember, Adam, if Andy Williams did this, but for many of the other stars who did holiday specials, they would have their family members on because the theme is, you know, family for the holidays. So as <laughs> you'd have a chance to hear their kids, which sometimes they didn't have the voice of the parent, but other times they were very talented kids. You could see the genetics in action. And um, that was also something that, you know, was, was very much part of the theme of those. Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Andy Williams, Christmas specials each year on NBC. Jerry in West Hills, your favorite holiday special. Made me think of the Yule Log. The Yule Log. I I have such memories of that in New York. They started doing it, you know, on Channel 5, on Channel 11 there, so that uh, they didn't have to pay for programming for the day. And it became an institution, and it's all over the country now. Including L.A., yeah. When it comes on, I turn it on, and we sit there and laugh. And, and I don't have a fireplace, and it brings back good memories. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's one of those things that's kind of hokey but can work also. I'm so glad you mentioned the Yule Log, Jerry in West Hills. 866-893-5722, your favorite holiday specials. We're talking with our TV critic Steve Green and Christina Escobar, but we'll hear from you when we come back. We've got some outstanding uh, choices for favorite holiday specials as well as favorite holiday-themed episodes from TV series. We'll be back in just a minute. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a you're as cuddly as a cactus, you're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. The music from Dr. Seuss's The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and we're talking about that among other favorite holiday specials of the year. Susan in Seal Beach emailed the Hannah Waddingham Christmas special. I haven't watched it yet, but sure looking forward to seeing the incredibly talented Hannah do her thing. Yes, star of uh, Ted Lasso, who is a multi-talent uh, a stage uh, acclaimed stage performer from the West End of London as well as Broadway and of course very funny and gifted actor as well Connie and Tustin emailed John Denver and the Muppets A Christmas Together Andrew in Santa Monica emailed my family group and I uh, started watching The Simpsons together the first episode of the first season is a Christmas special called Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire Always Heartwarming and Nostalgic to Watch 
Bush. And our news apprentice, Tamar, said, To me, the Rugrats Hanukkah special will always reign supreme. Growing up to have animated representation representation meant the world to me. Tommy Pickles' line, a maca baby's got to do what a maca baby's got to do. As he prepares to lead a revolt as uh, Judah against the Greek king in diapers never gets old. All right. A maca baby's got to do what a maca. Uh, Tamar, with that suggestion, 866-893-5722. Uh, David Mid-City says, uh, the Seinfeld episode, Festivus for the rest of us, of course, uh, where George's father uh, creates uh, his own uh, holiday. Let's talk with Jansen in Pasadena. What's your favorite? A more more modern uh, episode of Community, the sitcom, called Abed's Uncontrollable Christmas, where the main character, Abed, finds himself in a claymation stop-motion-like Christmas animation as the holidays are approaching. It's a really great internal journey into his mind about why he's seeing things the way they are and what Christmas means to him and everyone around him. It's very heartwarming and very, very witty. That's great. Jansen, thanks so much. Steve, did you see that episode of Community? In the style of those those Rankin-Bass specials. Yeah. For, yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, it is very sweet, yes. Uh, love that, doing a stop-motion episode. Anna in Sherman Oaks, your favorite holiday special. Hey, Larry, I have got to give a shout out to Garfield specials because in 1987, when the Christmas special aired, I was nine years old. I watched it repeatedly on VHS and the wonderful Pat Carroll, oh, Pat you know great. as Ursula, right, from The Little Mermaid. She, she was John's grandma on the show. So I repeatedly watched them on DVD now because I don't know if they air anymore, but I watched the Garfield Christmas, Garfield Thanksgiving, Garfield Halloween they're just my favorite. Oh, that's great. Anna, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Cliff in Carson City says, my favorite, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with the voice of Burl Ives and the Island of Misfit Toys. The Island of Misfit Toys in Rudolph is one of the most iconic um, and, uh, I mean, something that I've just referenced, and probably you have, too, at various points, because it's just such a great example of um, of, of sort of how they get reclaimed in the setting of, of Rudolph. 866-893-5722. Ingrid in Woodland Hills says the Walton's Christmas special a lovely family celebrating together. I know that was that was a high ratings getter, very popular as well. Jim and Claremont goes way back to Bing Crosby's holiday special where he sang a duet of The Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie, just bo- d- delightful. Christina, I think that's still popular on YouTube, that clip of of Bowie with Bing Crosby. And and when Bowie died, as I recall, that got played quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's funny what resurfaces, but you can see sort of, um, you know, both the musical elements, the mismatch, and perhaps their two personas and why that clip would continue to resonate. I think it'll be like um, how we watched Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett after Tony Bennett passed. It's one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Again, 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your first name and your location. I'd like to know what your favorite holiday specials are or if you have a favorite 
a holiday-themed episode of a series that you watched. I'd be very interested in hearing about it as well. Sometimes they're not um, so obviously centered around the holidays. I think, for example, about the movie Die Hard, which we're going to talk about on Film Week tomorrow— wasn't really thought of as a holiday film when it first came out, even though it's set, you know, begins around a Christmas party, but has become a holiday tradition for many people. And so there may be a series that sort of fits that as well. 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Christina, any others that you'd like to add uh, as among your favorites? You know, um, the it was recently not renewed for a third season, but with love on Prime. Its first season opens with a Christmas special, and then they do one episode sort of per major holiday. And I just felt like they captured something really beautiful about family coming together, about the chaos of it and the joy of it. Um, and it's something that I'm looking forward to rewatching this year. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, sometimes for series, they don't want to, uh, because they get run in all different times and with streaming services, who knows when someone's going to watch an episode. So maybe they shy away a bit from it, but, but they've been good comic fodder over the years, Steve. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, um, uh, we were talking about in the, in the run-up uh, of different, you know, Friends episodes. Um, Frasier has used the holiday to yeah. great comedic effect. Yes, yes. And, and, and of course, the, the Festivus episode that, that, oh, uh, that, classic. that someone mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. Uh, Cam in Studio City, we're very tight on time, but you're among your favorites. Hey, Larry, my name's Cam Clark, and you're probably the only one old enough to remember the King family I do. Christmas specials. <laughs> With Alvino Ray, yes, I do remember. Yes, that is my uncle, and I was the, one of the youngest members on the show. Your uncle was Alvino Ray? Yeah, my mom's one of the King sisters, and I'm Which one, one? one of the King kitties. Who's your mom? Was Alice King. Alice King. Four Kings. Wow. And yeah, we would do Christmas specials all the time. And I oh, yeah. get fan mail from wonderful folks saying we would gather around the show and watch the episode where your brother in Vietnam came home to surprise your mom while she's singing I'll Be Home for Christmas. So, And Cam, uh, we don't have time to get into it, but I know those specials, they were offered through syndication and they became very popular in markets across the United States and they bypassed network distribution. I think it was locally on Channel 11 in L.A., as I recall, back in the 1960s. But it was a fascinating model of marketing those specials as well. Cam, congratulations on that being your family background, the very talented King family with their holiday specials. Thanks so much for joining us for another Air Talk. Here and Now is next, and I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10 with our film week. On inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts.